TED Talk, which won hundreds of hearts. In 2012, Amanda was invited to talk for 12 minutes at the TED conference. She wasn't a professional speaker so she was nervous. Some years earlier, she battled out of a major label recording contract due to some issues. Then she decided to get money from her fans through Kickstarter to produce her next album. The crowdfunding success along with the attention it drew was the reason Ted invited her. Though she didn't know what to write about, she eventually decided to talk about her experience as a street performer, her crowdfunding success and the backlash that followed, and how she saw a connection between the two. She talked about crowdfunding and how it is okay for her artist friends to ask for help and money. She prepared her talk for over a month in the basement of a rented house. She ran the talk script past her families and friends in an effort to condense it into 12 minutes. Then, she flew to Long Beach, California and delivered her talk. She received a standing ovation. The TED speaker coach hugged her and thanked her for making her realize that it is okay to ask. Two days later, her talk was posted to YouTube and TED's site and it got 100,000 views within a day. It increased to a million and then eight million a year later. For Amanda, it was the stories that came after the talk that astounded her. People would stop her in the street to share a moment. Some people left their stories as online comments. Like most stage performers, Amanda had always been most passionate about sharing art and connecting with people. A street performer dressed as a white-faced eight-foot bride who gave flowers to people. Growing up, Amanda never wanted a real job. When people asked about her future career, she would simply lie and mention any impressive job that comes to her mind, a doctor, lawyer or vet. The actual truth was that she wanted to be a rock star. To make her parents happy, she went to Wesleyan University, but she learned no practical courses on how to be employable or be a rock star. After obtaining her degree, she flew back to Boston from Germany with no clue on how to start a real life. She started working as a barista, rented a rundown share house in Massachusetts, and decided to be a statue. In her late teens and twenties, Amanda worked several jobs but she spent the most time working as a living statue. She would paint her face white, dress up in a bridal gown and stand on milk crates on a well-trafficked spot in front of the subway station. As people drop money in a hat lying on the floor, she would bend and gaze lovingly as she silently hands each person a flower. On the first day, she made $38 in an hour and she decided to do this as a job. At the statue job, she personified the unadulterated, physical display of asking. For five years, she had moments of human connection as they dropped money. She also worked odd jobs ranging from waitressing to thrifting. Those jobs revealed human vulnerability and enabled her to learn about asking. Asking is the most important building block of any relationship. We constantly and wordlessly, though indirectly, ask each other so as to build and maintain our relationships with others. Everybody struggles with asking. From what I've seen, it isn't so much the act of asking that paralyzes us, it's what lies beneath, the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of rejection, and the fear of looking needy or weak. The fear of being seen as a burdensome member of the community instead of a productive one. Fight against disease. One winter night after a snowfall, Amanda pelted her neighbor's window with snowballs while Anthony and his wife, Laura, were having a dinner party. Anthony found it funny and offered to have snowball fights with her some other time. Over time, their relationship changed from occasional neighbor snowball enemies to full-on friends. Anthony and Laura did not have a child of their own, so they sort of adopted Amanda spiritually. 
Anthony was a good listener and professional therapist. He listened to all of Amanda's teenage pains and won her trust by telling her stories, instead of telling her what to do. He made her feel real. They continued to share stories on the phone, in handwritten and typed letters, and eventually over email. When possible, they also met in person for long walks, over coffee, over food. They would make up weird fictional stories about their neighbors, friends, lovers and themselves. As Amanda got older, they shared more real things other than entertaining stories, sad, embarrassing, scary, and mean stories. Sometimes, he would send her $100 in a letter. Other times, he would borrow her money for rent if she was broke. Anthony once came to watch the bride. He sat at a cafe across the sidewalk. Amanda felt proud that he had shown up, so she connected deeply with people that day. When she was done, they went out for falafel. He was so proud of her and he happily reported all the conversations that he had overheard while she was briding. Laura didn't understand the connection between Anthony and Amanda in the early days. But when Amanda grew older, they became allies. Amanda even promised Anthony that she would take care of Laura in case he died earlier than her. While Amanda was busy figuring out a way to avoid marrying Neil Gaiman, Anthony got really sick. And he kept getting sicker as new mysterious ailment keep popping up daily. Doctors took a biopsy from his temple and revealed that he had giant cell arteritis i.e. inflammation of the arteries. On a short break from touring, she received a message from Anthony that he had blood cancer, leukemia, he had been misdiagnosed by doctors previously. Amanda called Neil and he helped her change her flight to the earliest one. She bought a journal and wrote down her everything about Anthony that she could think of. He needed chemotherapy, so his friends organized a carpool so that everyone could take turns to drive him to and from the hospital. After much thought, Amanda canceled her tour and explained to her fans why. The fan mail started pouring in for Anthony. Amanda was overwhelmed by the outpour of love from her fans for her favorite person. After more chemo, the doctor informed them that Anthony beat cancer though it might come back after some years. Everyone was glad but too tired to rejoice. The seeing and connections with people as the statue bride wasn't enough so Amanda started a band. She was bored about being the perfect and silent bride. She wanted to explore the musical dot connection that showed her what she was, imperfect and very loud. So, she started a band with Brian Viglioni when she was 25. She played the electronic piano while Brian played the drums, they both looked for salvation through high volume. They met at a Halloween party that Amanda organized at the Cloud Club. Later that night, Brian presented himself as her drummer after Amanda played and sang four of my closeted melodies to her drunk friends. She was gladly accepted since she had always wanted to start a band and was almost 25, the due date she had superstitiously offered herself to get my musical stuff together or else face the certainty of being a total failure. A week later, they formed a band and named themselves the Dresden Dolls, in a gesture to Kurt Vonnegut's record of the Dresden bombing in Slaughterhouse 5 and the fragile, innocent porcelain puppets she generally envisioned strewn under the rubble of the crushed city. Her mum patiently taught her how to play the piano and urged her to take more lessons. She did not really enjoy practicing but she continued to write songs. All of the Dresden Dolls' travel inventory could fit perfectly in Amanda's Volvo station wagon. They would drive to far places to take gigs. Though email was new back then in 2001, Amanda made sure to maintain a newsletter email for the band and for house parties. To spread the news about parties, she would email 50 Boston friends to spread the word. 
These parties were often a big success, so Amanda made an email list for each city. She managed the band by finding co-performers, making friends with freaks in other cities, looking for couches to crash on and looking for galleries that would allow them to play at the opening. They gradually amassed a local, then regional following. By 2002, the author and Brian toured more and made a lot of money at the shows. They started burning their music on CDs for fans to buy. She released her first label record after three years. They toured continuously for years and played music in every possible situation, festivals, sports arenas, theaters, bars, clubs, opera house, etc. No indie label wanted to sign the Dresden Dolls because they considered them a goth band. Amanda had been called DIY queen many times but she saw herself as a person who got everybody to help her. She wasn't shy to ask for anything that she needed. When they wanted to set up their own studio record, Amanda made a short list of people and asked them to pitch $5,000 for the recording and record printing. They all gladly sent checks to her and she sent them printed letter as a sort of legal record. The first batch of 5,000 CDs was sold out quickly so they ordered for more. After two years of constant gigging, they still had no manager or booking agent. The emails were piling up and the phone calls were endless. A positive email came from a guy named Dave, an unknown metal band who wanted to pay them $50,000 in exchange for the rights to all their songs and cut from everything they earn. After some rounds with music lawyers, Brian and Amanda signed the contract with Blood. They got $100,000 from the deal and were able to keep publishing and merchandising rights. They paid their lawyer and all those who loaned them money for the recording. The band received a lot of fan mail including hate mail. The worst ones were featured on a special page on their website. People visited that page the most. Then, they thanked Amanda for being brave enough to bear it all. But, Amanda only did it as a sort of internet jujitsu to deal with the pain. She also started blogging about the good press, bad press, and her emotional struggles as she tries to balance band management, recording, touring, and her local social life. The relationship with the label was doomed from the beginning. They once had a meeting with Amanda and talked about editing shots that made her look fat. She refused and publicly complained about the relationship with her label on her blog. This resulted in her fan starting a viral movement called The Rebellion. This inspired Amanda to share more of her flaws and judge herself less harshly. Her blog readership grew immensely, things got worse when the label cut the promotional budget because the second week sales of an album did not surpass the sales of the first week, 25,000. They wanted Amanda to make a hit song and stop wasting time on fans, she politely asked them to drop them but the label refused. She faked being drunk and lied to Freddie, the A&R guy, about her need to settle down and have a family. A month later, she received a letter from her lawyer saying the label dropped her. She posted a celebration on her blog and thanked everyone at the label. Amanda was an expert at asking, yet she found it hard to take help from her husband Neil. Some years before the crowdfunding fiasco happened, Amanda met a writer, Neil Gaiman. A fast-paced and diagonal love made them chase each other around the world. They were pretty in love and ended up eloping into the living room of their friend to escape the stress of a big wedding. A few months later, they decided to have a wedding party in the UK in order to make their families happy. The night before the wedding party, Amanda had a panic attack because she was stressed about getting married. She was also stressed about not having enough money to cover her expenses and staff salaries. This was a new feeling to her because she has never been flat broke. She often borrowed money from family and friends when necessary. 
Yet, she was not comfortable asking for help from her husband. American culture has always promoted the notion that asking for help means accepting that one is a failure. The fear of no makes us a lot of people keep their mouth shut. Sometimes, our sense of not deserving help restrains us. An investigation of the beginning of a revolutionary shift in politics, successful startups, and great artworks will reveal a history of financial and non-financial exchange, the hidden patrons and primary favors. The crowdfunding success of her album caused an uproar. From the beginning, the Dresden Dolls worked in an artistic network that relied on swapping of favors and messy trade of goodwill. Ten years later, when the outside world was endeavoring to understand her million-dollar Kickstarter achievement, Amanda ended up burrowing through the past, attempting to clarify how it happened. For years, the band often did couch surfing in order to save on hotel costs. The surfer gets to gaze into someone's home and be comfortable by the personal space. For an artist, staying in someone else's home boosts inspiration. There is this unspoken rule when surfers enter the host's home, everybody naturally trusts everybody else not to steal anything. According to Amanda, when one openly and radically trusts people, they will take care of you and become your allies i.e. family. After Amanda Palmer's falling out with the record label, she wanted to make a solo album. She recorded two records and used her golden email list, Twitter, and blog to spread the news. With not much money in the bank, she decided to do something unheard of a Kickstarter for her album. For the novice, crowdfunding is a means of raising money for projects personal, creative, tech and so on by asking people i.e. the crowd to donate to an online capital pool i.e. funding. GoFundMe, Indiegogo, and Kickstarter are good examples of online sites that have made this transaction easier. About 25,000 people contributed to Amanda's campaign, they had been following her story for years and were glad she was independent of a label. This campaign made Amanda to be caught in the midst of a huge debate on the morality of crowdfunding, people saw asking as a despicable act. She was further lambasted when she asked for volunteer musicians to play songs during her world tour. People, even her smart business friends, asked about her plans for $1 million. Some said she didn't need the money since she used to have a major record label. People were calling her shameless on Twitter. She started to pay volunteers even though most gave it away to charity. The critics were all shouting from their laptops or windows. They weren't part of the shows and didn't understand the exchange. Amanda felt some people don't really get the concept of crowdfunding, they think there is free money somewhere. There isn't. Effective crowdfunding is about relying on the kindness of your crowd, not on the kindness of strangers. Conclusion Asking seems like an easy thing. Everyone does it daily for small things until it comes to big things. Society is not comfortable with asking, so we are brought up to be self-sufficient in order not to look like a failure. It is only when we open ourselves up and trust people that we can learn to ask for help from others. Try this, look at people with compassionate eyes because people love being seen. Smile at people, it costs nothing but it goes a long way. Stop stressing and ask for help when you need help. Learn to trust people in order to make friends and form a stable support system.